anything that's going on.
Lord, we come to you this morning with praise in our hearts because of you and your spirit in this place. Thank you for blessing us with family, with a, a group and a place and a time together to focus our lives upon you. May you bless those here this morning with a special um, moment with your spirit as we spend time together in this place. May we be drawn, drawn closer to you and may we be made more in the image of our Savior. So we thank you and we bless you with our song. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you remain standing? We read scripture and then the children can be dismissed. So let's read together. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. We just sang a part of it, but I want to start this morning by reading the entire psalm that the last song was taken from. Psalm 57 says, Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God Most High, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. We're going to come back to this psalm in a little bit. But first, it's said that Americans are the most time-conscious people in the world. We're always in a hurry. We multitask to get more things done in less time. We get our oil changed at places like Quickie Lube. Our packages are delivered by Federal Express. Our food is fast. Our coffee is instant. We drive on expressways. When we need a loan, we want instant approval. Our computers and phones are equipped with instant messenger. Someone has said Americans are people who shout at their microwave ovens to hurry up. And no one really seems to know why we're always in such a hurry. We may save a little time to get something done. We may go a little faster. But we're certainly not any happier, are we? In fact, doesn't the opposite often seem to be true? So a woman's car stalls in traffic. She pops the hood and looks in vain for the cause. And even though her hood is open and it's obvious to all that something is wrong, the driver right behind her is leaning relentlessly on, her horn, on his horn. Finally, she has enough. She walks back to his car, and in the sweetest voice possible, she offers, I don't know what's wrong with my car, but if you could please go have a look under the hood, I'll be glad to stay here and honk for you. 
In his book, A Geography of Time, Robert Levine suggests the creation of a new unit of time called the Honkosecond, which he defines as the time between when the light changes and the person behind you honks his horn. He claims it's the smallest measurement of time known to man. The waiting frustrates us. We feel like we're wasting time and losing time, and we can't change anything about it, yet we get impatient about it. We get impatient, waiting in line at the bank or in the store. Impatient, waiting for the package we needed yesterday to arrive. Impatient for the technician to finally pick up the phone after being on hold for the past 45 minutes. And what about waiting for God? Do you grow impatient waiting for him? Waiting for him to act in some way? Waiting for God to answer your prayer? Waiting for him to deliver you from some problem? Waiting for him to provide a blessing you were counting on? Waiting for things to get easier in life? Waiting when things don't go as you want or expect? Feeling like maybe he's let you down? That you've wasted your time waiting for him? We may get impatient, and we may not like it, and we may try to take matters into our own hands to speed things up, but you cannot get around the fact that throughout Scripture, we are told to wait on the Lord. So in Psalm 37, it says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Micah 7, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. And one that George knows very well, the theme of HBA, Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting doesn't mean something is wrong with our faith. Then sometimes we feel like it does. God may be providing time and opportunity instead for our faith to grow. And it's not just words. God came to Abraham when he was 75 years old and he made him a promise. You will be a father. And then he made him wait, not for a year, not for two years, for 24 years before Isaac was born. And we know that Abraham got frustrated waiting because at one point he tries to take matters into his own hands and has a child, Ishmael, by his wife's servant. God tells the Israelites that they will be free from Egypt and have a nation of their own, and they wait 400 years. God appeared to Moses and said he would lead his people to the promised land, and then waited 40 years in the wilderness. God told Israel, I am going to send the Messiah. And they waited not just for generations, but for centuries before he came. And when he did come, most people did not recognize him. And when he did come, his followers come to Jesus and ask, Can we please stop waiting? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? That was 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting for the blessed hope of his return. The waiting upon God always serves a larger purpose. It provides 
time for us to get to know him. God keeps his word. It may not be on our schedule. Waiting is said to be possibly one of the hardest things we're called to do. And yet patience is one of the fruit of the spirit, a virtue. What happens while we wait is critical. You know, the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the life of David. I want to return to him this morning. For even though he was God's chosen one, he was a man after God's own heart, as we will see in his life, it wasn't always fast and easy or pleasant. From the moment he's introduced in 1 Samuel 16, David's life is filled with ups and downs and long, long periods of waiting and difficulty. While he's only a teenager, probably 14 or 15 years old, Samuel, who was one of the most famous and important men in all of Israel, comes to his house for dinner, and his own father didn't think he was important enough to even call him into the fields to join them. Yet Samuel had come specifically for David to anoint him king. And he anoints him, and rather than head for the castle and a throne, David heads back out to the fields to watch the sheep and wait for four or five years for something to happen. It wasn't lost time. It was growth time for him. God used that time and those experiences to deepen his faith so that one day he could draw upon that depth and write, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, I have all I need. War breaks out. His three brother, oldest brothers head off to join the army while he stays home to wait in the fields watching the sheep and running errands for his father. One day his father sends him, who is now probably 18 or 19 years old, calls him out of the fields and the sheep to go check on his brothers and to take him some food. While he's there, he gets in a fight. He kills the giant. He inspires the army. He helps lead them to victory. And 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 5, says, Whatever mission Saul sent, him, David, on. He was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He's not only the anointed future king of Israel, he's a hero that the women are singing about. Everything seems to be falling into place, but he's brought up short again. Perhaps that singing brought back to Saul's mind the words of Samuel from years earlier that God had rejected him as king and chosen another who would be more worthy. And even though David had just saved the army, led them to victory, When Saul hears these songs, it doesn't sit well with him. And so it says, Saul became very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Not only keeping a close eye on him. Verse 11 says, the very next day after the victory... He tries to kill David, it says, by pinning him to the wall with his spear, not once, but twice. And then Saul begins to actively plot how he might kill the giant slayer, the people's hero. 
and the next 10 chapters of 1 Samuel through the rest of the book, in spite of God's promises, in spite of the victories, and all the good he did, David spends 11 years on the run from Saul. 11 more years waiting and hiding. It's an interesting turn of events when you read it, because in 1 Samuel 27, it says he even fled to King Ashish of Gath to hide. Well, Gath was not just a Philistine city. It was Goliath's hometown. And yet he went there to hide from Saul. And Jeff mentioned it earlier. I'll say it again. I stay away from politics in church. But in what provides a lesson for us, coming through such an ugly election cycle, David had all kinds of reasons to hate Saul, to resent him, to be against him. But twice during that 11 years of waiting, Scripture says he had it within his hands, the opportunity to kill the king, and yet he refused, saying he would not raise up his hands against the Lord's anointed. So from the time he was anointed as king, it took 15 years before he finally was set on the throne. 15 years of waiting. And then even at that point, it was a divided kingdom for another four or five years as they went through a civil war. Lewis Smedes from Fuller Seminary said, waiting is the hardest work of hope. Because it's work. That's something David learned. For in spite of the promises, a man after God's own heart, David spends 20 years waiting while he's tending sheep and running for his life and living in caves. 20 years waiting for God and his promises to be fulfilled. As 2 Peter 3 reminds us, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. For a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. And so the Lord is not really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. There's waiting with a purpose important to state what waiting is not. It's not idleness. It's not passively wasting time, sitting back, doing nothing. Waiting in Scripture serves a purpose. More than anything else, it's a time of growth. Richard Hendricks said, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. To wait in the Lord means to be actively engaged in the world, watching for God to show up and act. To wait on the Lord literally carries the idea of watching with anticipation and expectation, knowing something's going to happen and being prepared for when it does happen. To wait on God implies a dependence on Him, having a listening ear, trying to hear what He might say. So how's your prayer life? That's what it implies. It's having open eyes to look for where he might move. It's a time for digging into God's word, learning from others, observing and serving the world around us, being prepared. To wait means to have a heart open and responsive to God, to concentrate our spiritual faculties on heavenly things, as one writer put it, with eager anticipation. It's a time for worship. Things that cannot be rushed. Time spent with God, deeping your faith, knowing he's going to show up, 
and waiting intensively for him. And when we're doing this, whether it's 20 minutes or 20 years, time means little. The medieval spiritual writer Meister Eckhart said that as long as our soul is conscious of time, we cannot know God. We're too focused on getting things done. Hurry becomes an enemy of our soul. It keeps us from living well because we're so impatient for things to happen, we cannot experience God in the moment. It distracts us from what God is doing in and around us. Psychologist Carl Jung even said, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. Someone else has said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. What's essential, but we often fail to see, is that what we do while we wait is essential. Opportunities to prepare for God, to show up, to draw near to him. For David, it meant using those years of running to get to know God even better. At least eight of the Psalms were written during that period of his running. He wasn't doing nothing waiting for the Lord. He knew how to take care of sheep. He spent those 20 years learning to care and lead people. And in chapter 22, it even says many of those in Israel who were displaced and disenfranchised were drawn to him out in the wilderness. God was using that time to prepare him, as God uses the time in our lives as we wait upon him to prepare us. Which brings us back where we began, Psalm 57. A song from the cave is what I call it, because it's believed to be one of two psalms that David wrote while he was in a cave hiding from Saul during that 11-year period. Have mercy on me, O my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those, Saul, who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted in the midst of all that, in the midst of his waiting. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they themselves have fallen into it. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. He says that in the cave of hiding. And I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. So be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In writing about this psalm, John Ortberg said, in the cave, David made a discovery. He discovered that in God, he had a refuge. And sometimes we are in a cave, and no human action is able to get us out. There's something we can't fix, that we can't heal, that we can't escape. All we can do is wait and trust God. 
Finding ultimate refuge in God means you become so immersed in His presence, so convinced of His goodness, so devoted to His Lordship, that you find even waiting in the cave is a perfectly safe place to be because He is with you. Ortberg then goes on to tell about a friend that he attended graduate school in psychology with. His friend really, really wanted to get married. He was relatively good-looking. He was quite healthy emotionally, Ortberg says. But he always seemed to attract the wrong woman. Every girlfriend he had seemed to have some major issue. It grew discouraging over time, but he kept waiting. And he waited. And he waited. But in the process of waiting, he determined to make the most of things that he learned along the way. So after he graduated, he became a university professor, and he taught abnormal psychology. It became one of the most popular and highly intended classes on campus because to illustrate each major category of psychopathology, he described a characteristic of one of his old girlfriends. (laughs) Ortberg says he refused to make a foolish choice. He just patiently waited on God. Make the most of every opportunity, Paul said. God knows about caves and he knows about waiting. Jesus spent three days in one, at least His body did when they took him down from the cross. But the waiting ended. The tomb could not hold him. And we discover that God does his greatest work in caves. And if we place our trust in him, caves cannot hold us either. Paul says we can be raised with Christ in newness of life. David learned to sing the song in the cave. Do we, in the process of our waiting, times of discouragement, times of uncertainty, God can be found there. Call to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and you'll find rest for my soul. You'll find me in the cave. So our invitation this morning, when we sing in a moment, is if you need to find that hope in the midst of the cave, Jesus stands ready to welcome you and stand with you. As the worship team comes, will you all please stand and will you join me in prayer? Lord, the caves can be difficult and trying times, and yet you are there with us as David discovered and as he sang out so strongly. Help us, Lord, in those times of darkness and difficulty, of times of waiting and uncertainty, even there, to use that as an opportunity to look for you, to listen for you, to become aware of you in the world around us and in the life before us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And this is an invitation time. If there is a desire in anyone's life, a heart, to discover that Savior from the cave, we invite you to pray with you here at the front as we stand together. Yeah.